Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast features Simon Erickson, founder of Seven Investing. Simon is a very humble yet experienced long-term investor. In this episode, we talk about Simon's unique background and how it all culminates into a growth investor focused on businesses for the long term. We conclude with Simon giving us a primer on personalized medicine and machine learning inference, two fascinating thematics driving innovation forward. Here's Simon Erickson from Seven Investing. Simon, thanks for taking some time to join me on the Australian Investors Podcast. Oh, and I'm ready to have a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. It is around about 6.15am or 6.30am Australian time. What is the time in Texas? 3.30pm actually over 3:30 PM. here. 3.30pm. Yeah, right. It looks sunny. That could just be your lighting, but it looks sunny. So it um, looks like a great day over there. We're going to talk about you. We're going to talk about Seven Investing. We're going to talk about investing in kind of really innovative companies or hyper growth investing if you think about it that way. But what I'd like to do, Simon, is just go back a little bit for a little bit of time and talk about the key milestones in your journey that led you to where you are today. So I'm talking about childhood stories, into your early career, anything that you can think of. Like We have a lot of people come on the show and talk about mentors around money and investing from an early age and how that shaped them later on in life. So I'll just throw it over to you, anything you can recall, and then maybe we can step through university and, and early parts of your career. Sure. Yeah. Glad to, Owen. And I, I think that perspective matters so much of our investing styles, right? For me, it was always uh, save as much money as you could and just put it in the bank account, You know, put it into something that would be interest bearing, no matter how small that might be at an early age. And kind of going up as I got older, I realized there was other options. You didn't just have to let it sit in the, in the account itself. You could actually put it into a savings account. And then eventually you kind of realized there was this thing called the stock market and funds you could put it in. We're getting a lot better return than just letting it sit there or under the sofa cushions. I think that gradually, you know, you kind of learn more about these things. You see there's more information at your fingertips. That opens your eyes to better returns. And investing is, of course, a long-term journey that we keep getting better at every single year. Mm. How about in terms of people around you? Did you have anyone influencing you to say, hey, you know, you should consider putting money here or, you know, instead of this interest-bearing account, here's something else for you? I think it's a it's a wake up call for when you kind of realize what a four hundred one k is, right? You know, you look at a defined contribution. Your, your employer hopefully gives you some options to to put some money away, and you say, "Oh, great, okay, this is interesting." Now all of a sudden, I have a say on where I can direct things like this. And it starts out as just a chart that is kind of a here's your one year return of the fund, here's the five year return, here's the ten. You have no idea what's actually in the fund most of the time. But I think that maybe it's it is interesting when you start digging a little bit deeper. You see, okay, what companies? What's the strategy? Why is this returning the way that it is? Uh, that kind of opens your eyes to a lot of things in investing. And for me, that was kind of what got me started in picking individual stocks. Yeah, right. And how about, because Simon, I was doing some digging into your background before this. I'm familiar with you and your work or some of your work during your time at The Motley Fool. How about, you know, this, I, I, I saw as I was going through, I saw that you studied chemical engineering, which, yeah, it's great. And when we're talking about innovation, wonderful. But at what point did you decide something like chemical engineering was the track that I wanted to go on? And I wanted to pursue that over, say, investing. Yeah, science and math, those were my, uh, my strong suits in, in high school. And I guess that kind of led me to the chemical engineering thing. I kind of thought I was going to be working in a chemical plant after I graduated until I actually started working in a chemical plant. And I said, well, wait a minute, <laughs> let me change courses. Uh, but it was very quantitative, right, Owen? I mean, a lot of number crunching, a lot of formulas, a lot of strategy and figuring out why things are broken and problem solving. And I think a lot of that kind of translates in many ways to the quantitative aspect of investing. Uh, but then after changing years uh, from going from being an engineer, I, I next translated to being a sales rep, a technical sales rep that was out uh, racking up the frequent flyer miles and shaking hands and trying to close business selling specialty chemicals. 
but you know, it was it was kind of the the other side of of it, right? It wasn't so quantitative and numbers driven. It was more of why do people want to buy things, and what are what is the uh, the reasoning that they would want to purchase from our company and things like this. And it was always they wanted to look forward, right? The common trend, no matter what industry you were in, was hey, what can I make that's new? That's a higher margin product. They get a higher selling price for. You know, you get out and you see so many different perspectives, whether it's personal care, oil and gas, agriculture, wherever it might be. Everybody kind of has this common theme of they want to innovate, they want to do new things. And so, I kind of combining in my perspective on this was starting as an engineer that said, okay, nuts and bolts, how are we going to use this formula to problem solve? To kind of taking more of an external view of saying, okay, what do people want to do out there in different industries? And then kind of combining that leads you to this innovative mindset of, all right, how, mar- how do markets change over time? How can I think about this in terms of pain points? And it might not be so much all about sales anymore when you're not a sales rep anymore, but kind of the same idea translates to investing. When you see there's bigger problems that are trying to be solved out there, and whether it's cloud computing, whether it's personalized medicine, whether it's any kind of digital payments, whatever it might be, there are innovative solutions that are addressing the problems that we're seeing across markets. Mm. One thing that is interesting, because I know you you run your own business now, is one of the things that we had to do when, when we were starting out, um, and even more recently, we've been doing more of this, is we spend a lot of time at RAS thinking about who is our customer avatar. So we define this kind of this profile of ideal customers for our business, right? Like even with our podcast that people are listening to right now, we think, who is listening? Because we don't really know, right? And oftentimes, and this is just how it happens, we come back to where we have in our mind that many people that listen to the show are engineers because they want to understand how the world works. Even if they're not formally engineers, they're, they're tinkerers, they're people who just like to know what actually goes on in the stock market, in business, in you know, when it comes to psychology, what do I need to know? And we kind of we kind of formulate and plot episodes and, and user experiences around that. Being an engineer, Simon, or not being a qualified engineer going back in time, how do you think that equipped you for looking at companies? Because I feel like that's a very strong advantage in terms of just being able to understand physics, chemistry, biology, you know, those essential hard sciences that are playing a bigger role in innovation today. Yeah, I think a lot of it is kind of supply chain, right? Like it's the nuts and bolts of how a company operates. It's uh, how are you sourcing things? How are you transforming those into things that are worth more? Then how do you sell those? I get to see kind of the sales side of it too. Uh, Every company tries to be as efficient as possible, but has got problems uh, in the supply chain. And and whether it's Starbucks, whether it's GE, whatever size, any large company has got things that they're wanting to fix. And I mean, there's some interesting, innovative solutions that come from that, right? Starbucks is using blockchains to simplify its supply chain. You never would have thought that Starbucks was so far ahead of the Bitcoin and blockchain craze, but it is, you know, because it's led to things. You know, we saw uh, eco-imagination. You know, GE was kind of really one of the front runners of clean energy and doing things more efficiently. Even large companies that are incredibly complex see changes that are taking place out there and they adapt. I think as an engineer, you kind of get to see a lot of that. You think about those kind of things because you lived in it and you put the hard hat on, you get out there in the chemical plant and you swatted the mosquitoes in the Texas heat. It's kind of an appreciation for how complex things like that can really be. Mm. How about, Simon, if we go back to kind of your track in your career, you know, started out at GE, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, I think you did an internship before that, but started at GE. Can you take us through the period from, you know, your career up until founding Seven Investing? Um, I'm interested in any kind of key milestones that you can think of and how those milestones or lessons learned, you know, et cetera, just to pull pull on those things that you maybe haven't had a chance to do in recent years because you've been so frantic running your own business. Yeah, probably the the best was the freedom of of being not married and not having kids and getting to go out there and fly everywhere, right? Uh, I I shouldn't say freedom. I'm going to get some hate mail from my wife, particularly on that one. But you know, the idea of just kind of traveling four days a week was really unique to, to kind of get to see so much and um, be out there in the field. I love to travel. Even after I, I got into investing, oh, and I, I did conferences every single month, you know, for four year periods. Uh, I haven't done this last year. I'm a little rusty because it's been COVID, but uh, I, I always like to see what was out. I think that's my perspective on the market is a top down approach where you see rather than just starting and doing a DCF from ground up and building it from the company level. I like to look at things at the bigger picture and kind of see which way the wind is blowing. 
and saying, okay, you know, if you're, if you're just like a salesperson would be, okay, why do you want to create this? What's the opportunity? What's the marketing you want to do? Now it's kind of a step above that as an investor saying, okay, why are the markets wanting to change? What's the problems we've been seeing? Uh, let's drill down from that and say, okay, well, what companies are actually addressing these pain points? And then drill that down another layer and say, okay, now that we got some tools that we can use as investors, whether that's valuation work, whether that's looking at the fundamentals, whether that's more subjective things, let's find the right companies of that pool we have to choose from that are addressing the problem and showing the right financials and growing and getting operating metrics. And so for me, it's kind of, it still starts at the top. I still think of things as an investor, as why does this company exist in the first place and what's the benefit it brings not only to its shareholders, but the bigger picture world at large. Where do you think you honed that skill? Like at what point in your career did you come out and start investing and immediately think that way? Or was there kind of some formative steps that you had to take intellectually, say, to come to that realization that that's how the world works? Oh, yeah, for sure. No, I, I don't think I even really started considering individual investing until at least my late 20s, maybe early 30s. It started again, just just sales rep through my 20s, uh, went back to MBA school, did entrepreneurship and finance major. Uh, so kind of that boils down to uh, how are you raising money and who are you partnering with is <laughs> the, the key themes on that. I uh, worked for a renewable energy division of a large oil company after that. Uh, so that meant how do you how do you go invest in solar projects and biofuels projects without screwing up the cash flow machine that is your business? And built kind of the business plan around that, worked with the venture capital group uh, for some M&A activity. We acquired some companies that, that had some neat technologies for that. And then after all of that, kind of said, okay, let's, let's flip the switch from being internal to a company to being more of an external look at, at what's going on bigger picture out there. Look at your competitors. Look at the other companies doing things out there. And that was what brought me to The Motley Fool. And Motley Fool, I started with at a analyst development program um, where it was really, how do you hone some skills as an individual investor? What do you look for? What is a discounted cash flow model? You know, what are valuation multiples that are considered good or normal? Kind of put all of these tools in your tool belt to start assessing companies. But it's kind of, you know, pieces of all that. You got engineering piece of it, sales piece of it, business strategy guy piece of it, and then investor piece of it. It's kind of a, it's still a growth style investing perspective, I think, that I have. Do you ever think about why they don't teach investing concepts you know, the, the, the proper investing concepts more at universities. I, I, I'm always taken back that, you know, it, it takes us learning on the job, so to speak, to actually understand how discounted cash flow analysis really works or what are valuation fundamentals. Because, you know, the Warren Buffett saying, you know, better investor because he's a business person and vice versa. I'm often, I'm often perplexed. Like, why don't we teach these concepts earlier so people can understand how the world works, at least in a, a capitalistic framework? I think that would be phenomenal. I, I would highly encourage that, especially, you know, for even at the high school level, I think understanding the time value of money and compounding and finance and all of that. We certainly didn't get a whole lot of exposure to that when I was in high school. And then I'm really big on in universities having some electives that are simulation based, where it's it's kind of you make individual decisions and you see the the outcomes, good or bad, from from the decisions that you make, where you still tip a kind of tipping a, a pinky toe in the water, so to speak. You're not putting thousands of dollars on the line, but you can kind of see how all of this works together. I, I love the idea of teaching it earlier and earlier. Yeah, because we'll come to, I guess, the way that you invest. And I think the way that you invest resonates a lot with me, but I think the journey to get there is often, for most people, very, very difficult. Because on the one hand, you talk about having that kind of quant brain, being having the engineering background, but then the sales and kind of the softer skills that go into selling things is so important too. And then when it comes to actually holding companies, extremely you know well-run, long-term focused companies through intense amounts of volatility, those three things kind of interplay and make it very difficult for people to understand the true value, at least in the short term, and kind of understand that the long-term value creation is what we're targeting here. Uh, before we get to exactly seven investing and, and why you started it, in your earlier days, and even maybe when you're at the Motley Fool, so not that long ago, who were you? Was there anyone that you were looking at and thinking, wow, that's a really good role model of the investor that I want to be? You know, we talk about Warren Buffett, but was there anyone else that you were reading or you were following and thinking, wow, this person thinks and, and invests clearly and concisely and they understand their, their process? Like, was there anyone in your life, you know, you didn't have to know them directly necessarily, but just anyone in general? 
There was. And I might even ask, Owen, is the most common answer you get to this question, Warren Buffett, when you ask people who their investing role model is? I'd say so. Yeah. He's the godfather of investing, but I figured it'd be the most popular answer. Uh, Mine is a bit unique. Mine is actually a gentleman named Clayton Christensen, who uh, many people may or may not know that name. He's kind of credited as the father of disruptive innovation. And so he wrote a book in 1997, Changed My Investing Life. It was called The Innovator's Dilemma. It describes why it is that large companies fail. So why is it if you're GE or IBM or Exxon, you're at the top, you're at the peak of the S&P 500, the largest company in the market, you have superior resources, you have superior manpower, you have superior money in the bank, you have everything at your disposal to go out there and get ahead of the market's biggest changes. So why are those companies, all those that I just listed, so much smaller fraction, you know, sometimes a tenth of as, of as large as they were at their peak in the market cap? Why did they fail or why did they become smaller, at least in terms of growth rates and get displaced by smaller disruptive companies? And so Clay Christensen explains all of this. I think it's a phenomenal book, The Innovator's Dilemma. Uh, he passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately. I did get to interview him a couple of years ago. I really wanted to go up and have coffee with him in Boston. I never got around to do that, but he's one of the brightest guys I've ever chatted with. I mean, you could tell his mind is, was as sharp as a tack and just understood the correlations between what companies were doing and why that was going to matter and have an impact. And then also why those large companies with superior resources couldn't do the same thing. And so this kind of influences, back to completing the circle here of your question, of as a growth style investor, it's one thing to go out there and just invest in the headlines. You hear about some hot company that's everybody's talking about in the media because it grew 60%. But there's another layer beneath that of will this be successful? And why am I investing in this company that has so much uncertainty because its cash flows and its future growth is still in years down the road? And there's got to be something different. There's got to be something disruptive or innovative about their approach that the larger companies can't just copy and immediately crush them. And to me, that's the most interesting kind of strategic part of investing that I, for years, tried to be a student of understanding better and better. Hmm. In 2020, you launched Seven Investing. So as we record this, it's been about just over a year. I guess the first question is, why did you launch Seven Investing? What was it? that drove you to go out on your own and start the company? Yeah, I kind of wanted to have more peripheral vision, I think. You know, you had a lot of ideas. There's a, you can make a great impact with larger companies, but you're also still kind of siloed in what you can actually go out and do based on the budget you have, based on the resources you have. I said, hey, you know, what what if we were to do this and have the ultimate freedom and autonomy to go out and, and figure this out? Right? Start, start the puzzle from scratch. Piece number one is going to go into place where? On launch day. And in addition to that, which was kind of fun for me as a, as a guy who likes being an entrepreneur and doing this crazy thing and taking on all the risk of, of, of starting on your own, but the, the rewarding piece for me also has been bringing in a team that thinks very differently than I do. So rather than just go out and do this by myself, it's been incredibly rewarding to hire other advisors that think about stocks and think about investing with a completely different perspective than I'd had that weren't engineers turned sales reps, turned business development, turned Motley Fool employees. I mean, Anirban is a good friend and colleague of, of both of ours. Now now one of our advisors at Seven Investing has a completely different perspective as an inventor, as a PhD that was going out and creating at an academic level, new things that were solving problems out there. Matt Cochran. Matt Cochran understands digital payments empire across the entire world, not just in the United States, but also what's going on in, in Australia and in India and in China. Max Chatsko is looking really at what's going on in the biotech world. You know, and he just really gets into the nitty gritty of FDA trials. This is impossible for, in my opinion, one person to keep track of everything that's going on out there. And I think one of the huge benefits from having a team with Seven Investing that I'm so proud of is that we try to capture all of those. And it's not just Simon looking at every market out there. It's, it's Simon and all seven of our other advisors kind of pulling together our best ideas in the stock market every month, and then giving the buffet of options for anybody to choose for what's right for them as an investor. Mm. I think one of the the really good, one of the really strong tells or signals that you get from a, a young business and from an entrepreneur themselves is looking at who is attracted to invest uh, to working alongside that person. I think that's a really strong tell in terms of you know whether it's technical talent, uh, leadership skills, management skills, vision, etc. How do you go about recruiting people like this? Because these people are well credentialed, could be working anywhere. 
why do they end up with you and not going somewhere else? Yeah, I think we've got a really strong mission, Owen. You know, at the very, very top, the, the, the mission statement that kind of influences everything we do is to empower you to invest in your future. And it's not just a tagline. I mean, it, empower is kind of a transfer of knowledge and information. We're trying to help others do their thing. Um, invest, all the, all the tool and the tool belts that we talked about of, of investing, we're trying to bring those out. And then your future, you know, this is... This isn't just dollars and cents and, and numbers on a, on a scorecard. This is retirements. This is people covering healthcare costs, putting their kids through college, whatever it is. I mean, the picks that we're making, people are trusting us with that. It's We, we can't screw this up. We don't want to just throw something out there and say, oh, hey, too bad. You know, if it doesn't work out, oh, well, I'm sorry. I mean, we take this very seriously. And I've taken a lot of very, very serious steps in the, in the hires that I've had. A lot of us have letters after our names, PhD and MS and, uh, and whatever else in my MBA. I think that there's a lot more to it than that. But I think that this team is, is kind of pulled together by we have a strong kind of agreement that, that what we're doing is making a really big impact out there. And that's incredibly powerful, in my opinion. Mm. I'd say just the opportunity to, to work alongside other people who come from different backgrounds and fields, as, as you said, is also very alluring because, you know, I think we're taught as investors that, you know, there's no one right answer. And so, and that's what makes investing difficult, I guess, is that there are varying opinions and strategies and and two things can be profitable at the same time, but be total, totally different. So I think that's, you know, I can understand why Anuban or Nirban, who's been on the show uh, in the past, made the switch. I know he loves US companies, he loves innovation. So I think he's probably out there having a field day, just digging through some 10Ks and learning about businesses for you and the team right now. So can you just explain before we move on to um, your investment philosophy, what 7 Investing is? I, I, I love the clear messaging that you have, but I'll maybe just let, hear it from the horse's mouth, let you explain what you offer to your members and to your investors. Yeah. Thank you, Owen, for the opportunity to chat a little bit about our group. Uh, you kind of had the foundation of what 7 Investing is. This is a question that I ask all seven of our advisors, including myself, every month, which is, what's your very best idea out there right now? What have you got out of every pick you could make, out of every you know, all the thousands of companies out there, which one are you so interested in right now that you're going to name that your very top opportunity? And again, different perspectives. We kind of cover a lot of bases in this, but our product at the core is, is seven recommendation reports, uh, one from each advisor that we pull together into a subscription product and we make available for subscribers for $17 a month or $170 a year. And then from that, we kind of realized this isn't just publish a report and disappear. Uh, we built all of the other capabilities, the walls and the rooms and the roof and everything else on that foundation of following those companies and providing updates on, on how they're doing out there. Uh, we have a monthly subscriber call where we actually interact directly with subscribers and they ask us questions about each one of the companies. So we're kind of on the spot answering uh, to show that we've done our homework and we know what we're talking about. Uh, you've got to be ready for any anything is fair game in a subscriber call like that. And then advisor updates too. You know, I, I really love to hear uh, Dana Abramovitz, who's our newest lead advisor. She has a PhD in biochemistry and a postdoc. And so she's really at the forefront of the changes going on in America's $4 trillion healthcare industry right now perspective I didn't have any a valid opinion about. But to hear things like that from somebody who's living it and the expert of it, I think it's really unique and really exciting. Um, and so anyway, 7investing, it's a newsletter product. Uh, we publish something once a week and um, $17 a month, 7investing.com. Yeah, cool. Then there'll be links in the show notes and you've been kind enough to set up this kind of affiliate program with, with us, which is fantastic. So that I'll, I'll explain more about that at the end. But um, why'd you call it seven investing? I wanted seven opinions a month. <laughs> it all kind of started as this late night eureka of, you know, who did I want to talk to out there and approach to, to be a part of this thing? And I said, well, you know, if we could pull seven ideas together and, and make it a really affordable price point, um, can, can we do this? Can we get out there on this on our own and do this as a, as a small team? So that was it. It was that we really wanted to have seven reports every month. And Seven, I mean, seven is just kind of a neat number for me too, Owen, right? The seven wonders of the world, right? Seven's the lucky number of the casinos, things like that. I, I kind of chuckle when I think about it, but it, it started in a late night Eureka. I tried not to wake anybody else in the, in the house up as I'm going downstairs and scribbling on a napkin, the original business idea for the, the company. <laughs> That's great, mate. That's great. Okay. So let's step into your investment philosophy now. Like I said, I, I, it resonates with me how you think, and obviously it does with your, your members and subscribers as well. To start at the top, what are some of the key factors or features or things 
that you look at when you're researching really innovative companies? Yeah, we chatted a little bit about kind of how it starts at the top, right? And you can kind of define, let's let's put a little bit more detail into what I mean by all of that, of you see a trend that's developing out there. Let's use programmatic advertising as an example, right? Where advertisements are placed based on, uh, first it was web browsing history. Now it's kind of what we know about users. We're kind of seeing a shift to that to connected TV. But it kind of starts with like this move from like direct ad placements to like programmatic algorithms that are doing things. Okay, cool. Neat trend. That's fun, Simon. We see some stuff that's going on out there. And so this was something I identified a couple of, several years ago, maybe almost a decade ago. And my original thought on it was, okay, what's one of the companies that is doing this? I, I actually thought Yahoo of, of all companies. I saw Yahoo was one of the early innovators in programmatic. You know, they were doing this. They had some web, prop- web properties out there. They wanted to place ads on those. Uh, they were getting a smart, methodical way to do this. But just kind of, you know, the, the next layer down, we, we dug farther and I said, Yahoo, I don't think is the right company for this. They've too rigid. Uh, the revenue growth wasn't what I wanted to see. They weren't really, this wasn't the right company in terms of operating metrics. And then a couple of years later, we discovered another company called the Trade Desk, which was doing the same thing, kind of from the buy side, which means they were representing the ad agencies, which were integrating with publishers like Yahoo to place those ads and quantify, you know, really drill down into the ROI of everything going on. And so kind of that's kind of the process that we look at. You think, first of all, higher trend of, of what's taking place out there, identify some companies, throw the buffet out there to choose from, and then find the one. Trade Desk was growing gangbusters out there. They had the, the right leadership team in place. They had the right revenue growth that was just putting them heads and shoulders above everybody else that was trying to do this. And now you're starting to see this whole ad tech platform. I could talk about this for two hours. I won't, but it's really a fascinating part of the market that has developed from what was originally just a need, right? Of how do you improve the ROI and get visibility into how your ads are performing out there? Mm. Yeah. Programmatic advertising is a fascinating industry. And I think it's long overdue because of the transparency or the lack thereof in traditional models. You know, even out of home advertising, how do you know how many people look at your billboard to then, you know, if you place an ad, a traditional ad on a website, how, how do you know with certainty how many people looked at that? And then inside the walled gardens, you know, well, we all know about the transparency and concerns around that. You mentioned in that, in your answer there, you mentioned good management at Trade Desk, at the Trade Desk. You said, you know, it had all of the things that I'm looking for, good management. In your definition, what is good management or do you have an example of a good manager? Yeah, Jeff Green. I mean, like he's a great example, right? I mean, he's he kind of was right there at the forefront of this trend. I think he was placing ads for an agency before he was doing things. I like I like companies that are founded around somebody that is leveraging experience that they have to do something to solve a, a problem that's out there, right? And so, I mean, like when we talk about managers, they kind of can come from a bunch of different places. They could be um, hired to bring the company public, uh, whatever else it might be. I don't know. There's a bunch of different definitions for it. I like to see a high ownership percentage. I like to see somebody that's investing in the growth of the business. I like to see them willing to stick their neck out and do something that is being called crazy or at least um, irrational at the time. And then, of course, somebody that thinks about the organization itself and how they're structuring to take advantage of that without blowing up the business. Reed Hastings, another great example at Netflix. I mean, somebody that was willing to disrupt Netflix's profitable DVD by mail business in order to do streaming when everyone else was not doing this yet. Uh, Jeff Bezos, of course, common answer for this. Always, I like the example of $750 million. He invested in Kiva Robotics for the warehouses. Everyone's saying this is completely irrational. These robots are not ready for commercialization yet, Jeff. You're blowing money up and overpaying for this acquisition. And now how many billions of dollars every year is Amazon saving on its logistical costs because it was ahead of this warehouse as a service? I mean, things like that, you can't quantify with algorithmic screams in the market. But if we're just looking at price to sales and price to earnings and return on invested capital and all of the other hard metrics, you're going to miss all of those stories. And like back to like the strategy of investing and like the looking forward, I mean, you can't quantify so much of that stuff and it's not going to be picked up uh, in the ETFs or in the funds or in the other the high frequency trading that's going on in the market. It takes an understanding of that. And that to me is kind of one of the more interesting, exciting parts about investing. Mm. One of the things that is easier for us to do. You know, Munger says it's easier to avoid doing something stupid than it is to seek brilliance. I love that quote because it reminds me that, you know, there are so many small wins you can have as investors just by avoiding losing money. And so maybe if we can invert this question for a moment, what things or factors or variables would you consider as kind of 
you know, getting you towards that no answer. No, I'm not investing. Like Yahoo seems like it was a good example in terms of it had some innovative part of the business in terms of programmatic advertising. But then on the other side, it was, you know, it just didn't have the operating metrics. So is there anything that you tend to avoid if you identify that earlier on? Yeah, I, I guess in my world, it's it's maybe you would call it growth at any cost, right? You look, you avoid the companies that are just lighting your money on fire and don't have a plan to scaling the business to profitability. There's a lot of hype cycle out there, right? And for those that don't follow the hype cycle, it's Gardner says, hey, everything is super exciting when it's new and it's sexy and everybody's going to ride this up to peak valuations. And then all of a sudden it's going to come crashing down because a lot of the companies that rode this all the way up fall off that cliff. But pot stocks, you know, uh, blockchain, uh, virtual reality. I mean, we've seen all these 3D printing. We've seen all of these companies that there's a wash where everybody or a lot of companies were just kind of chasing it and putting all their money into marketing and trying to get at every trade show and huge sales force and um, advertising everywhere. And they didn't have their eye on the business itself and realizing, okay, what is really, really important? What should we be prioritizing? Because at the end of the day, we want to we want to maximize our cash flows. We don't want to just maximize our revenue. It's like the old saying, you know, we lose money on every sale, but we make it up on volume. <laughs> you know, it's one of those, you have to eventually start making money, especially for investors. And I think that America has got a pretty innovative culture, right? Silicon Valley has given a longer leash to companies to say, okay, we're eventually going to get there. We've got VCs that will invest in these early, early stage companies and bring them public when they're still unprofitable. But at some point, you've got to you've got to sh- put your money where your mouth is. I don't like to invest in companies that don't have at least a three-year strategic plan that's going to show some kind of realist- realistic expectation of profits. And that's for me, I think, is probably the biggest turnoff, at least in the, the world of the kinds of companies that I like to look at. Mm. I think that ties in well with the trade desk too, because it always balanced profitability as it scaled, you know, being this kind of super innovative company, yet it was able to manage that with, you know, exceptional cash flows and and profitability along the way. Yeah. One more thing, you mentioned Munger, who's a brilliant at this and understanding incentives. And I think the other the other real turnoff is bad behavior in the management team, right? Like every decision should be like the financials and all this. This is the exhaust of how the car is being driven, right? If you are driving a giant school bus and you see this giant black plume of smoke coming up, you're probably not driving the car correctly, you're not driving the bus the way it was intended to be driven. But you see so many bad managers out there just paying themselves excessively with stock-based compensation while the company is still completely unprofitable, Right. Nuanced communications, really, really big in natural language processing and understanding what surgeons were talking about. So I could just speak into a headset and then it would transcribe that. But terrible, terrible incentive structure. Management was paying itself way too much. The board of directors was quitting, taking giant you know, golden parachutes on the way out, and it's just lighting money on fire. And of course, you just see them get acquired just recently by Microsoft. We weren't able to do this standalone, I think, because they were taking too much money out of the business rather than putting it back into the business and, and capitalizing on this huge opportunity of, of AI and NLP. So another another real big turnoff is, is bad behavior in the management suite. Mm, for sure. How about then, Simon, once you find a company or companies and you think about portfolio management, as I was going through the Seven Investing website, I was reading all the different takes from all the advisors. I was reading yours and everyone else's and hearing how they think about portfolio management because this is often like a major component of the CFA curriculum or of any type of uh, applied finance study that you do at university. And oftentimes I keep coming back to, you could do it that way, but I prefer to do this. There's a lot of human overlay that comes into it. Even the best you know, fund managers in the world often just say, you know, we just, we just equal weight the portfolio or we just take a really simple approach to how we think about this, these things. How do you think about portfolio management? And I think you have some really neat analogies around how you do it personally. It is a great question. And it's one that I think will be different for everybody who listens to this or speaks to, to that question that you asked to your guests. The first question you should answer is what type of investor do you want to be? And what is your risk tolerance? There is nothing wrong about investing one style versus a different style, right? If you're investing in quote unquote, boring dividend stocks that are only quote unquote, again, paying out maybe four or 5%, but they're giving it to you in dividends and you know, you can pretty much count on those. 
but you want that income because you're getting close to retirement and you've got bills and you don't really want to take a whole lot of risk in the market, that's the perfect type of company for you. That might be the type of fund manager you want to align with. My personal answer is I want to let it ride because so many of the companies I look at are still early on. I like to invest in companies that are probably between 1 billion and, and, and 10 billion US dollar market cap. Uh, that's still early. When you think about the, the fact that you could have 10 baggers, companies are worth 10 times that amount if they execute correctly, if they're in the right markets and, and growing uh, and, and doing the right things. Uh, but to do that, to really capture those gains, you, you got to have a little bit of faith in your original analysis and not sell when you get a company that's a double, right? I have kicked myself more times than I want to admit for selling too early because I said, oh my gosh, this is great. I got a double. I'm going to take the money off and go buy something fun and have a great date with my wife or, you know, get a nice dinner or something. I think you go back and you look, you know, a couple of years later and you're like, oh man, <laughs> what was I thinking? Took all, took all the profit off the table. So for me now, I'm, I'm very comfortable letting it ride. I almost don't take any position at all that I'm not willing to hold for at least three years, honestly. Um, the only time that I sell is if something bad happens and I, and I realize I was wrong and it's not working well, operating metrics are flawed, or I see opportunity costs where I'm just really more excited about something else. And that's a tough decision too, of saying I like this one more than that one. But for me, I, I will gladly hold a position. I, I think I have one right now that's 25% of my tradable portfolio. And I sleep well at night with that because I'm pretty comfortable with the business. Mm, I think that's yeah a great answer. How about, I heard on a uh, previous podcast you recorded this idea of the what we would call Texas Hold'em uh, and the analogy of, uh, I guess, adding to winners, you know, watering the flowers and, and trimming the weeds. Can you explain how that, that works and how that plays out for you personally? Do they have Texas Hold'em in Australia? Is this yeah. recognized down in the country? Okay. Yeah, okay, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I just figured because I'm from Texas, everybody like uses that in every conversation we ever have. <laughs> Definitely, it's, yeah. It's information, right? Okay, so Texas Hold'em, great. Like you get two cards and then you see three more cards and then you see one more card and then you see one more card, right? Flop the turn of the river. So every time you see a new card, there's more information. If you watch this on television, you see the little percentages change uh, where nobody else can see those percentages, but you know how likely each character is to, or each player is to win the hand. And so that's kind of the same in, in the analogy for investing. If you're going to get into a company where it's still early, that might be before you see the flop before you see the cards that are on the table that everybody else can see. I like to take an early stake when I hear about a company at a conference, at a technical conference, an academic conference that might be newly public, that might have gotten some funding from a, from a VC group that I respect, uh, that might have a leader that has a background that really is doing some neat things and a different perspective on the industry. But it's still too early to catch the full attention of the mainstream. And then we see the flop come out. There's some more cards. Maybe they start reporting some great earnings. Maybe you get some institutional investors taking some stakes in it. In the turn, then the river, you know, there's more cards that kind of that kind of bring this into be more and more popular. But if you're willing to take those early stakes when there's a less mainstream headlines and, and the information isn't all out there for everybody to see, I think that's a huge advantage for us as individual investors where we're not going to get phone calls at two in the morning from unhappy shareholders if things don't go well, we can take small stakes and take a couple losses in exchange for companies that more than make up for that because the math works out if you get multi-baggers that will cover your losers. Mm. I think it's a great analogy because the longer you play the hand, the better the odds if you've got a good hand, but the payoff becomes smaller typically. And so it's balancing that uncertainty and that information asymmetry if you can find it early that's when you see those multi-bag returns. And I think that's a, a really neat analogy to kind of wrap around that. How about when it comes to, you know, you found the opportunity, do you do any work in terms of valuation? So I'm talking discount of cash flow analysis, you know, earnings multiples, ratios, any of that type of stuff. Do you do that? And I guess what are the limits or how do you see the limits of that approach the way you invest? Yeah. And I'll ask again, Owen, is the most common answer you get to this uh, multiple comparison, comparison of multiples? Well, it's it's probably that or discounted cash flow analysis, to be honest. Yeah. Okay. Sure. DCF. Okay. I've done plenty of those. Uh, DCF. DCF is difficult because especially for growth companies, it's going to be wrong. I would challenge anybody to have a DCF that, that is three years out and is correct to two decimal places. It, it doesn't exist. All the inputs have got so many uh, variances to them, even whether it's GDP, or growth of the country, whether it's, you know, catch, I mean, DCFs are really challenging, in my opinion, at least for growth companies and the types of companies I like. 
Uh, for me, it's a unique answer because I think evaluation is a, a comparison between between two things. If we exclude dividends, the gains that investment in the stock market produces for you as an investor is a function of one of two things. One, fundamentals growth, or two, the multiple that the market is willing to pay as a multiple of those fundamentals. Right. So let's just do an easy example. A company sells at 10 times sales and it's growing at 100% a year, sales at 100% a year. If price to sales is the correct quote unquote metric that the market is valuing, if it continues to sell at 10 times sales and sales grows 100% year over year and still sells at 10 times sales, you've gotten a 100% gain on your investment, right? Market's still valuing price to sales of 10. The the sales is now double what it used to be the previous year. And so you've doubled your investment in a year. And typically that doesn't hold. Valuation multiples contract a bit as companies get larger. The large the law of large numbers kicks in and uh, it, it contracts a little bit. And sales growth typically contracts a little bit too. It's rare to see a company continue to get larger and larger and then accelerate its sales growth. Uh, I would highly recommend keeping those on your radar if you find them. But, but typically, if you do think about it, though, even with the contraction of multiples or the contraction of, of, of sales, I tend to think about things in terms of not discounting immediately a company that might sell at 30 times sales, which is kind of people think of as an expensive valuation. But what is that in the relation to the fundamentals of the business itself? How fast is it growing the top line? How quickly is it scaling the operating margin line? And does it have a, a reasonable strategy in place to continue that in the future? And that's when I'm willing to buy into companies like Snowflake or companies that, that are, are always being called overvalued, super expensive. How many times have you seen that company in particular in the headlines of overvalued, too expensive, you know, things like this without appreciating the fact of just how quickly it's growing the top line, just how quickly it's getting more and more revenue from its existing customers. I mean, the relationship between the valuation multiple and the fundamentals to me is more important. And that's kind of what I think about in terms of valuation, how I use that as a tool uh, for looking at these types of companies. Mm. Do, you ever, do you ever look at total addressable markets and the growth rates of industries? It's an interesting one. This is something Peter Thiel has talked about a lot of what is really your addressable market. Is Google's addressable market uh, di- internet-based digital search or is it advertising? Google will say it's advertising. So they can say, oh, look, we're only 2% of the world's total advertising budget uh, versus you know 80% market cap when you look at American-based digital search engines. I, I do think that it, it's, I, I, I hate it when I see an investing presentation that throws out an addressable market that is not even at all achievable. But I understand why companies do it. They don't want regulatory lawsuit hammers uh, coming down upon them. But on the other hand, I think that that execution is key. You have to understand there's a niche that you can grow into. Focus on that customer group first, expand that over time. And then kind of like the Kiva Robotics example for Amazon, start as you're selling books online. Then all of a sudden your inventory is more optimal and efficient than everybody else. Now all of a sudden you're doing logistics for everybody. Now all of a sudden you're doing cloud computing for everybody. I mean, things like that, it's like a small seed that grows into a, a tree over time and keeps getting better and better. Mm. And that's something that, again, in terms of the, the quantitative, the, the metrics that we look at, it, and I'm going to use the word in air quotes, uh, value investing, traditional value investing has a very difficult time of valuing on uh, optionality. And I think the information asymmetry in terms of your and, and analytical ability. So we talk about investing edges and the way you and the team look at things is kind of like that bleeding edge. And I think you can use that to your advantage to that kind of overwhelms the uncertainty that comes through. You know, maybe, you know, we can't value this based purely on this business alone, but you're thinking, you know, that's not, that's what it was. It's what it is that's that we're buying. And I think that's a really neat concept like in terms of the way you've recruited in your business too, because you only get those insights through deep domain knowledge. I don't know. That's just a bit of a riff on my end, but um, I feel like that's relevant here. It's so relevant. And it's true because you kind of see these, these platform shifts, right? These paradigm shifts that happen every seven to 10 years in the technology world, whether it's computers or internet or cloud or now AI. I mean, things like this impossible to quantify the past when you're looking at the future of things like that. Companies are redefining how they're attracting customers because now they're using the cloud, now they're using all these digital tools. 
that they didn't have years ago. And so that changes fundamentally the acquisition costs of the business, the subscription, the retention rates of the business. I mean, a good company should be aware of and in front of technologies because it can have a really, really big impact. And I don't want to knock on value investing. There, there's nothing wrong with, with value investing. I just think that value investing in the context of companies going through a digital transformation uh, is missing a, a large, large part uh, that's important to the, the thesis of investing here. Mm, for sure. And I think that I think you spoke about this previously. They're effectively one and the same. We're looking. We're all looking for value. It's just how do we, you know, define value and how do we quantify value or not? And one of the things that I think a lot of people fall into is using historical data to to forecast the future, and that's just one of the little things that make the type of investing that you do, I think, from my perspective, very difficult, especially for newer investors. Why do you think more people don't invest the way that you do? You know, is there some sort of behavioral quirk that most people can't in terms of they can't handle it? Or is it, you know, incentives? Is it, you know, embedded beliefs about what the stock market is? I don't know. Do you have any insights on that? Well, first of all, I mean, a lot of people don't want to be as big of a nerd as me and the rest of my team is on, on talking about some of these trends that are just academic literature at the time or are just kind of hidden stories. I mean, that's probably not the most popular cocktail hour discussions. Uh, <laughs> it is for us, but we're a, we're a rare breed of that. I, I guess the other part of it, I mean, back to the part of it, is it too hard or is there, you know, there's so much volatility in these kind of companies, right? You see an earnings release that, that the expectations were completely off. Either the expectations were way too high or they were way too low, and the stock either shoots to the moon or it gets hammered because they're not modelable because you're kind of hitting that inflection point of the S-curve. That's exciting when you hit it on the way up and, and people say, oh, wow, you know, this company's up 20% today because it crushed estimates. And, and estimates are, I mean, that's we shouldn't make fun of estimates. There's a lot of work that goes into Wall Street estimates. There's a ton of of quantitative rigor, knowing this as an engineer and also seeing kind of a, you know how Wall Street operates, we shouldn't discount those. They're very comprehensive, but they don't catch the things that are not being either um, discussed by the company management because they don't want everybody to see what they're working on, or they're not understood by analysts that have to put price tar- targets on there. It's better to undershoot than to overshoot. So a lot of times we, we undershoot, uh, we, we see price targets that are far too low. Or on the other hand, if companies just have something that's out of their control, COVID hits, uh, spending uh, on on capex is is it doesn't work out like you want it to because there's a chip shortage going on for semiconductors around the world right now. I mean things like this really hammer a growth company, uh, especially when they're trying to raise money from equity financing, and that just double compounds it. I mean things like this it's almost more pronounced for smaller, fast growing companies that can that can hammer stock prices. And as investors that aren't looking into all of those reasons on a daily basis. Uh, that can be very frightening when you invest in a company that goes down in 20% in a single day. You, you probably think, oh man, I screwed this up or what did I miss? And you might be tempted even to sell those kinds of companies because you think something's really wrong there. When in reality, that's that's kind of more fundamental of how this this goes for those types of businesses. So a kind of a mix maybe between, um, it's uh, like you said, a lot of uncertainty in the future. That's the innovator's dilemma to a T, coupled with a lot of volatility. And you got to kind of have a a steel stomach of conviction to be able to ride it out as you see huge swings in prices. Mm. When you were talking about um, academic rigor and, and in terms of price target setting, I interviewed uh, Morgan Housel recently, another former fool I forgot to mention to you off air before. And he has this brilliant piece where he talks about catching a baseball and he talks about the function or the formula that, that goes into, you know, what actually, you know, to predict where that ball is going to land it's incredible. This formula is just, you know, maybe you can understand it, but I'm just looking at it, just scratching my head. But then at the end of the day, a child can come along and just says, you know, I just catch it. I just catch the ball. That's all I've got to do. And I think from a young age, we're taught that investing is about numbers. It's a purely about like formulas, like math, price earnings ratios. If it's low, I buy. If it's high, I sell. But there's so much more to that. And I think I don't want to oversimplify what we do as investors, but I think there's a point in time where it's like, I just catch the ball. I just see where it's going and I get there. And, and I love that uh, analogy because I think, you know, if more people could think a little simpler on those, those key things, 
the way that they approach investing radically changed for the better. Yeah, Rask, I mean, Morgan is brilliant at this, at explaining things in a way that makes sense. I, I feel like your site, Rask.com, I was checking out uh, before you and I started chatting a couple of weeks ago. I mean, you, this is kind of how you got a great start too, right? The education of saying, hey, how can we make this understandable? We don't have to go through and look at all the formulas of the baseball. How can we look at the outcome and the impact that this will have on people? I mean, that, that's probably the most important part is that knowing that it is complex, we don't always need to make it as complex as that. Yeah. And I'm going to now totally switch gears on you, Simon. And I'm going to talk about something that is complex, but I'm hoping you can break it down for us, which, because I know you spend your days foraging through you know, academic literature, through industry reports, talking to other really smart investors and business people, etc. Two of the things that we wanted to discuss on today's podcast, the first of which is this idea of I guess, machine learning inference, which to many of our listeners will kind of sound a bit unusual. Like what is machine learning inference? Can you explain the opportunity, maybe even provide some examples of kind of what this opportunity is and how you would think about positioning for it? Yeah, sure. So let's 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 bring this down into terms that are actually understandable and stop saying machine learning inference, which is the technical term, which is great, but let's let's just say we're, we've trained computers to understand our world better, right? We have trained A-L-E-X-A. I don't want to say her name because she's going to go off in the background, but Amazon's devices that are in your home uh, to, to ask questions to. And, we, and we've trained her to understand these things that are words, and then words go together into sentences and questions, and she now understands more and more relevantly what we're asking. We've trained the algorithms and the AI uh, how to, how to respond to these things. Now they have to develop chips to actually do something about that. The recall for things like that is the inference piece of this. How do I actually respond to this question now that you've trained me to understand it? How can I dish you out the most relevant answer? Tesla's doing the same thing. Everybody who's developing a self-driving car has trained the car and the processors and the, uh, the machine learning and the neural networks that's the central of all of this to recognize what a stop sign is. We've showed it 5 billion pictures of stop signs, and now the car understands what a, what a stop sign is. The inference piece of that is, okay, now that I see the stop sign, I realize I've got to have a process to put the brakes on and not kill anybody in the process by responding to things like this. Even like a Zencaster call like we're doing right now, and we use Zoom all the time for ours too. Zoom is looking at inference for the use of identifying noses and ears and hair of people's faces so that it can use software code, if you can believe this, to actually reconstruct your face using an algorithm so you don't have to have the full video of us discussing. Video takes a lot of bandwidth, right? It takes a lot, you know, if you have somebody with a slow connection, you might see them kind of choppy. What if you could use software to just create 95% of a person's face and then just get the details? I mean, things like that are fascinating when you think about the implications this can have on transportation, on consumer buying habits, on things like uh, you know video conferencing and, and, and how that could go into the healthcare field. And things like this are now opening up what AI is meant to do now that we're progressing from the training phase of machine learning to the inference phase of machine learning. And once that starts becoming more and more mainstream, we're going to see some companies on the cutting edge of this. They're going to make a lot of money for their shareholders. So this is quite a technical field if you get into the weeds of it. How do you go about getting that information? If we're talking about algorithms, your algorithm would be get information. Uh, how do you do that? There's ecosystems. There's AI ecosystems, you know, things like PyTorch, TensorFlow being created by Facebook, being created by Google out there that now you kind of are dumping all of this into out there. Those are platforms, right? Those are kind of the foundational layer of this trend to take shape. And now you're kind of starting to see companies that could use something like this for an individual application, like a self-driving car, like a, um, you know, a device in your home that could respond using natural language processing, like a video conferencing that could be used for appointments in healthcare. You're going to start seeing companies ado adopting AI and adopting cloud computing and these digital tools to start building out unique opportunities. I, I think the next platform like that um, that's similar. We're seeing a lot of this with blockchains right now. You've got a fundamental foundation using Ethereum for smart contracts, using Bitcoin for a lot of exciting things. 
Uh, we're seeing the space economy kind of getting launched out there where you can start putting sensors out into outer space and the satellites. You can do that for logistics monitoring across the world, transportation, uh, weather climate forecasting, things like that. But there's got to be kind of this critical mass that catches on first. There's got to be a foundation before we can build a house. We're starting to see the foundation in place for AI. And now it's time to start building out the walls and the bedrooms. Mm. I love this because I, I just get really geeky around the technology part of it. But the investor part of my brain says, well, what's the best or optimal, what's just an optimal way? So it doesn't have to be the way to monetize it. As an investor, how do you position yourself to capture some of these gains? Like if I'm, the way I think about the blockchain and Ethereum is kind of like TCP IP networks back in the 90s where everyone loved anything with .com in it, in the name, you know, stock prices went through the roof, but it took a massive washout. And then we saw platforms like Google, which is basically what people, how people describe the internet these days. They describe Google as the internet when it's really a different thing from a technical perspective. Um, we think about Amazon as a platform. I guess that's a quite a, uh, a difficult question to unravel, but what I'm thinking about is kind of how do you see in terms of machine learning inference, um, is it more the you know abstraction companies operating and using that those platforms and, and using that technology to produce a product like those consumer or business facing products, or is it is there some sort of platform itself that you think is going to be monetized and, and really interesting in the future? I'm doing a lot of thinking about that right now. I'm not even sure I have the right answer to be honest with you. And I think that it's kind of a field that's that's so cutting edge that a lot of companies are really starting to think about how, how do we use this this neat new thing. I, I guess maybe if it helps to, to give a somewhat similar example of something that did work and a company that did very, very well with this was Netflix in, in the use of, of microservices. We, we've heard kind of this, this, this concept of DevOps, right? Of how do you decouple your developers from your operations and uh, make it so that everything can move more quickly and you can fix parts of a website or parts of an app without screwing everything up, but it doesn't have to be some gargantuan project. You, know, you can tweak things in ways that, that makes it incrementally better every day, every couple of hours. You know, People aren't going to have to wait for other things to happen. This is what Netflix did so well with its own site, with its own recommendations engine, with its own app. It was really a, an early leader in microservices. It had really, really good developers. If you look back, Netflix is not a large organization, right? As large of a market cap as it has, look at how many employees it has. And historically, how many employees it's had. It's just been people that really were ahead of a trend and were very, very good at that. And so when I'm thinking about machine learning and this new move of, of now that we've used GPUs to train all these neural networks, what are we going to do with them now? I'm going to be spending a lot more time on my own as a researcher for investment opportunities of where's the talent going for these kinds of things, right? Tesla is going to hire some really, really good people to do this self-driving car, this autonomous car. That's going to be so important to how well they execute Who's a company not as large as Tesla, uh, who everybody already knows is awesome, but is doing something similar and getting ahead of these really important trends? Mm. I, I really like that example. I think that's a neat way to kind of go about tackling this problem. One of the things that I tend to spend a bit of time doing is looking at developer forums. So like Stack Overflow, GitHub, whatever, and not necessarily what's being written in there, but how active they are. Because if they're active, it means the people that know what they're doing there's something there that they're talking about and they're thinking about building, which is kind of a, a really, I guess, easy way to kind of just put your finger on the pulse and see, is there actually a pulse here? Is there nothing at all? The other thing, Simon, that I know that you're fascinated by and you're, you're thinking about each day is this idea of personalized medicine. And I've got to admit, in contrast with machine learning inference and pushing you know, those algorithms from testing to production, that's something I'm a bit more familiar with than personalized medicine. So you're definitely going to have to be my field guide here. And I imagine for most of our listeners, can you describe what personalized medicine is and how that is going to change the way we think about healthcare? Yeah, absolutely. Healthcare is, is a data-based field and it always has been. Right when you go to the doctor uh, and you and you cough and they take some you know diagnostics on you, uh, they say based on the information we've collected, we think that you have a sore throat, and so take some of this, get a get a prescription at the pharmacy because my best educated guess as a doctor is that this is going to cure what I've seen based on your symptoms, based on what I know about the field, based on the data and the literature that's told me this is the right approach. And what we're really improving now is not just more subjectively taking some measurements when we come in for a patient and say, okay, 
this is what's going on with you. But for more and more serious conditions, we can tie a lot of that uh, to the genome uh, itself. There are two fields that are really, really important right now. They're genomics and genetics. And they are not the same thing. They're similar, but they're all based upon DNA. Genetics is your DNA that you're born with as a baby. Your DNA doesn't change throughout your life. You can see through non-invasive prenatal testing when you're when you're before you're even born, you are at risk of certain diseases or certain conditions. And if those are treated super early in life, based on what the DNA roadmap of who you're going to be as a human being is, you can proactively treat those. You can even adjust your diet and stay away from certain things that you should. You can do pharmacogenomic tests where you take certain drugs instead of other drugs because they're going to be more efficient for you. Things like this is a really, really good roadmap for you. And we know it from day one. And we're starting to see a lot of hospitals adopt this, right? And, and patients accept that, hey, this would really probably be a good idea to start doing this early in life. The other field is genomics, which is more of profiling things like tumors that, that might show up. Uh, and what is the sequence, what is the DNA of a, of a tumor, of a living thing out there? Or, or if it's not a tumor, you know, how do we, how do we address things like SARS or covid or things like this that we take for granted that are living, that are biological, uh, and how do we treat them? And even within patients, if you can combine, okay, this is what the patient looks like, and then this is kind of what a tumor we see developing looks like, how should I really be treating that as an oncologist? And so personalized healthcare, I think at the end of the day, is fascinating because we've got more and more information now. We've got a better and clearer chance at success for the treatment because at the end of the day, the doctor wants to give you the thing that's going to work uh, and improve your quality of life and your survival rates. And so now that we've got tools that can do that through a lower and lower cost of genetic sequencing, of DNA sequencing, through AI that's kind of connecting the dots and correlating between here's what patient looks like versus here's the most optimal treatment. I mean, this is kind of going to redefine healthcare. And at least for us here in the US, like I mentioned earlier on the program here with you, that's, that's a $4 trillion market with a T. A lot of opportunity to make that a lot more efficient. Yeah, for sure it is. Through the software component, I have some exposure to clinical decision support systems and um, decision support systems through hospitals and, and healthcare systems because for a long time, hospitals have been able to manage patient flow or manage, I guess, the diagnostics of healthcare, whether it's in hospital or out of hospital, pretty well. You know, this patient has high blood pressure. Let's send a message to command, which might be down the hall, which is the nurse station. And let's make it, let's, let's go and see what's going on. But I think this is this new field that we talk about and what you're talking about, personalized medicine is going, you know, into the biological process and actually using that to better understand patients and patient and predict patient outcomes, which is fascinating. Like I, I just find it kind of, cause I'm not from that background. I find it like mind boggling the complexities of that, but I think the real world implications are going to be extreme. Are there any sources or like places you go to learn about that? I mean, I, I really like to talk to Max and Dana mostly about it because they're so much more ahead of the game on, on understanding how the whole system works. There's huge regulatory issues. I mean, data privacy, patient privacy. I mean, this is like the ultimate slow moving field of healthcare that like Apple and Google and everybody wants to crack. But it, it's not always just so easy of saying, oh, yeah, here, just let us unleash our AI tools on, on your patient records. They say, no, these are our patient records. We're not giving this up. But I mean, you kind of see, I, 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 I think that to your question about what are we interested in or what am I what am I watching? Uh, Google tried with with uh, what was it? Oh, and I think it was called Project Nightingale was the one here in the United States with the Ascension Healthcare System in the Midwest United States. They they got some patient records and it actually started to use you know their their uh, their approach to how do you make this more efficient and it it blew up privacy. You know, hey, wait that what the heck? I, I don't want my patient records going to Google. Apple, I think, at least in the States, has got a, a better reputation of protecting privacy. But again, this isn't something that will happen tomorrow, but we are making progress. We tried a couple of years ago with a nudge from our government for electronic healthcare records. And, you know, hospitals had to start digitizing things. And it just kind of became this burdensome nightmare uh, of overhead of, of doing all of this all the time. Doctors want to be spending time with patients, not punching things in the computers. But there are tools that could take a lot of that off their hands as long as we can kind of figure out the larger system and all come to the same terms of how we should be doing this. Mm -hmm. Fascinating stuff. And I am not the place to go to find answers to these types of questions as an investor. So Simon, is the best place for people to go, listeners to go, is seveninvesting.com the best place to go to learn more about you and then get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. Seveninvesting.com is our homepage. Uh, we post public facing articles on what we're watching to that site. 
Uh, we also have a podcast, seminarhosting.com slash podcast, where we, we uh, interview uh, external investors, uh, business leaders, kind of see what they're interested in talking about out there. And we have a live stream too, where we kind of interact with, uh, with our members and our subscribers. All of those are kind of resources that are, that are free that we, that we have available for anyone. Yeah, cool. Having seen it on the inside, mate, it's very impressive what you created. And I love, I think the great thing about companies that, that solve important problems is they make things that are complex seem simple. And I think the very framework that you have in terms of the site, the messaging, everything is just simple. It's easy to understand. It's easy to navigate. So I mentioned throughout the discussion that anyone that listens to this can join Seven Investing. It's only $17 a month, which is, I think it's crazy to think that it's only $17 a month Uh, and you can get research reports, seven research reports every month on these high conviction companies from people who know what they're talking about. Not only that, if you use the coupon code RASK, that's R-A-S-K, you'll get it even cheaper again So for the first month. So it's just, it makes so much sense just to go and try what Simon has built. So we'll provide all the links in the show notes. You can go and get that. By the way, Rask, as always, doesn't receive anything from anyone. This is just purely because I think it's a brilliant resource. So go and do that, 7investing.com. Use the coupon code RASK, that's R-A-S-K. Details in the show notes. One final question for you, Simon, my favorite. If you could go back and tell a younger Simon one thing about money, finance, or investing, what would it be? Man, what a great question. I, I would say it is be patient. My younger self was too eager and too excited about Something that I thought was cutting edge, solar panels, investing in China, whatever it might have been, you know, the, the hot topic that was trending. And I made mistakes and I, and I didn't understand what I was jumping into because I was too eager to get into the, the sexy new thing and the sexy new trend that was out there. And I would tell my younger self, you know, there's plenty of time to add to positions and there's plenty of time to do more research and see more cards that show up on the table in the Texas Hold'em game. I mean, don't feel the need to jump all in before you see any other cards, you know, feel free to just put 20 or $50 into a company to get yourself following it more. I mean, we've got it now that we don't have commission fees for most of our brokerages, you know, and you can buy fractional shares with most of them too. So if it, if it gets you to follow the company more closely, know that you've got years and decades ahead of you, young Simon, uh, to become a better and better investor and don't feel the need to take too large of a stake too quickly. Add to it over time and don't be afraid to buy companies at all-time highs. Wonderful. That's the, you're the first person that's ever said that, Simon. I think that's a great answer. So thanks for taking the time out to join me and listeners on the show today, Simon. I, I really respect what you're building and I'm really appreciative of you having me on the show, Owen. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm.